Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. We've got bank failures and unconstitutional solutions to bank failures. Well, who predicted this? Well, the Jeffersonians back in the 19th century. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. But you can also go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Also go to Spotify for podcasters. Just look that up. I think it's spotify.com forward slash podcasters. And of course, you can find the show there. You can become a supporter at that particular website. Throw a few pennies my way. Or if you're watching on YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video. Throw a few pennies my way that way. All those are great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Also, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Share it around on social media. That's how we help get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast. All right, so we've had a big, massive bank bailout again in the last couple of weeks. The, uh, we've had a couple of banks fail out west. And, of course, this is all because of their poor risk management policies. But the real problem, the, the deep-down problem in the roots, is American central banking. And we know these banks are bailed out by the Federal Reserve. And this issue of what banks can do or not do, or the problem of banks, central banking in particular, to the American political and legal system and the economic system, has something, is something people have discussed in the United States for over 200 years. You see, back in the 18th century, I'm just going to give you a little history of a short, brief, just very general history of American banking, central banking. It was thought the United States needed a central bank. Well, why? Well, because a central bank allows for the government to borrow and spend more money, particularly on war. That's what the idea was originally. The United States had problems fighting the war, the American War for Independence. And so people like Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton thought, you know, we need a central banking system. Now, Morris, in many ways, financed the American War for Independence. And there were other wealthy people that did the same thing. But once the war is over... There's a real push for a central banking system in America so that they didn't have to rely on these kind of things in the future. So in 1787, around the same time period the Constitution is being written in Philadelphia, there was a push to get a central banking system, and it became the Bank of North America. Now, there's no enumerated power in the Articles of Confederation to have a central bank. So that didn't matter. 
What happened was the Congress chartered one anyways, called the Bank of North America. It was in Philadelphia. And that became the de facto central banking system for the United States for a brief period of time. Now, when the Constitution was being written in Philadelphia, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison had a long conversation in August of 1787. Outdoors, they took a walk, and they talk about this issue of a bank. And both wanted one. Both thought a bank was a pretty good idea for the central authority, but they knew that if they proposed a power to the general government to charter a bank, it would receive so much opposition that the Constitution would not be ratified. It wouldn't probably even make it out of Philadelphia. So they both agreed that this issue would be tabled and left for a discussion after the Constitution had been finalized. In other words, they both knew that the power, the enumerated power to do it, was not in the Constitution, meaning that a bank if you interpret the Constitution strictly, which is the way it was intended to be interpreted, was not constitutional. Well, it didn't stop Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, of course, in September of 1789, September 11, 1789, is appointed Secretary of Treasury. Hamilton then begins to work on shoring up, in his mind, American finances. And part of that would be a Bank of the United States. He proposes one in 1791. This is the famous exchange between Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Hamilton and George Washington, where Jefferson writes a fairly short uh, opinion on, on the Bank of the United States and the unconstitutionality of the Bank of the United States and sends it to George Washington. Well, Washington agrees and has James Madison begin drafting a veto message. The Congress had passed part of Hamilton's requirements or requests, I should say, to shore up American finances and create this Bank of the United States. So at that point, Hamilton is given an opportunity to write a rebuttal. And where Jefferson wrote about 2,000 words, Hamilton wrote about 8,000 words in, uh, in support of his bank plan and the constitutionality of the bank. Washington gets that and then agrees with Hamilton and decides he's going to allow the bank bill to pass. This, of course, infuriates Jefferson and other Republicans and really puts, in, in some ways, the beginning of that major schism that leads Jefferson to resign from his position as Secretary of State. So we, now we have a bank of the first bank of the United States, an unconstitutional bank. The thing that shocked Hamilton, though, was that Madison was completely against it. In fact, Madison tried to get it defeated in the Congress. This was shocking to Alexander Hamilton because he thought Madison was on his side. But Madison, knowing what the Constitution meant, knowing what he argued in Virginia and how the other proponents of the document argued for the Constitution, thought that this bank was unconstitutional. There's no enumerated power to do it. But of course, Hamilton relies on the famous or infamous necessary and proper clause to ensure that the bank gets pushed through. He says, look, this is necessary and proper for me to do my job, essentially was his argument. Jefferson, of course, took a very narrow view of necessary, and this is where the two had a, that was part of the argument. Well, Jefferson takes this very narrow view of necessary, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating debate between the two. Now, I talk about this, by the way, you've got uh, two classes at McClanahan Academy. You've got how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, and you've got reading Thomas Jefferson, where I go over Jefferson's opinion on the uh, on the bank, and of course in the Hamilton class, I talk about this issue as well. So you need to pick those up at McClanahan Academy. 
So now we have a bank in the United States that has a 20-year charter. This is 1791. So 1811, the bank will expire. Well, in 1811, who's president of the United States? Well, James Madison. And of course, at that point, the bank fails recharter. And we, the Congress refuses to recharter the bank. So now we go into the War of 1812 without a central banking system. And this is one of the great complaints about from a lot of people during the War of 1812 that the United States struggled to finance the war because they didn't have a central banking system. What did I say at the beginning? Why do we have central banking systems? To finance government spending. That's what they're there for. They're, to, they're, they're basically a slush fund for government spending. When the government can't get what it wants, it just relies on the bank to either inflate the currency or borrow money, do whatever it has to do to try to get the money so it can spend more money. Right? So 1811, we don't have a bank. We go through the War of 1812. To those that want much more federal power to spend money, they start proposing another bank of the United States. So in 1816, the Congress passes another bank of the United States. This is an interesting episode in and of itself because you've got John C. Calhoun in favor of the bank, at least in what you can do with the bank. This is the famous bonus bill that he proposes that Madison vetoes, and that Madison veto was curious for a reason I'll talk about in a second, but the bonus bill would have spent the extra money that would have come out of chartering the bank on internal improvements. Calhoun was thinking, well, we need to do some things, shore up American infrastructure, uh, shore up American uh, you know, harbors and other things, and so we can use that money for internal improvements. Well, that bill was vetoed by James Madison. He doesn't veto the bank, but he vetoes the bonus bill. This is Madison's major inconsistency. Now, why didn't he veto the Bank of the United States, Second Bank of the United States? Well, because he thought time and precedent had made it clear we needed a Bank of the United States, but somehow the bonus bill is unconstitutional. You can't make up this kind of duplicity on this issue. Both were unconstitutional. Madison had argued just 20 years before the bank was unconstitutional. Now he's saying it's constitutional, but the bonus bill <clears throat> is not constitutional, which of course it was also unconstitutional. Madison was right about that, but he's wrong about the bank. This is where Calhoun is seen as inconsistent. The old Republicans didn't really trust Calhoun because they thought, well, you know, Calhoun uh, was willing to stretch the constitution at times. So now we've got another bank in the United States the second bank of the United States. And of course, a full court press is then applied to get rid of this thing. And one of the ways they tried to do it was through a tax, the state of Maryland and other states, but the state of Maryland tried to tax the bank. Well, if you're going to charter a bank here in Maryland, we're going to tax it. Well, uh, that was resisted and that ended up in federal court. It ended up in the Supreme Court in the very ca famous case of McCulloch v. Maryland. A case in which John Marshall rules that the bank is constitutional, essentially. I mean, John Marshall was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at this point, and he essentially took Hamilton's arguments from 1791, regurgitated them, told Daniel Webster this is how you do it when you're arguing before the court about the constitutionality of the bank, and then regurgitated them himself on the bench. So what we've done now is taken Hamilton's arguments for the Bank of the United States and codified them because the Supreme Court issues a ruling, a majority decision, which... That's a, that's a martial innovation, by the way. A majority decision that says the bank is constitutional. Now, again, people are shocked about this. How can the Supreme Court do this? Right? This is where Jefferson was very upset 
with uh, John Marshall early on in the 19th century because he thought the Supreme Court was going beyond its bounds to do this kind of thing. But we've got now a legal opinion that the bank is constitutional, that you can stretch the necessary and proper clause in this way. You can charter a bank. It can be legal. You can, by doing this, by the way, you're creating, you're codifying again loose construction of the Constitution. In other words, you can do anything you want to do as long as you say it's necessary and proper for the government to do its job or one of these other enumerated powers. And that could be anything, right? You, you think about that. This is where the opponents of the Constitution worried because they said these kind of clauses, the necessary and proper clause, the supremacy clause, they called these the sweeping clauses. You're going to have a situation where the general government is going to do just about anything it wants because it has these sweeping clauses. So now we've got the bank again, another 20-year charter. We've got a second bank of the United States. Well, fast forward 20 years, or about 20 years, a little under 20 years. The president of the Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, and his ally in Congress, Henry Clay, want to push for a rechartering of the second bank of the United States. They make this an election issue in 1832, and Congress will pass a rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. Well, Andrew Jackson looks at this as a personal issue. Now, Jackson wasn't necessarily anti-bank. He uh, was not really you know, that interested in that or many of these other issues, but he knew Henry Clay wanted a Bank of the United States, so he was against the Bank of the United States. And so he issues this very famous bank bill veto, which is really Jeffersonian in language. Um, it's a great veto, one of the best documents uh, that's, uh, that's ever been written about uh, central powers and the powers of the general government. And I covered that document also in a McClanahan Academy class, Southern Cultural Intellectual History. But you've got that bank bill veto there. And the bank fails, right? So now we don't have a bank anymore. The bank fails. Uh, it fails recharter. It doesn't come back. So 1836, the bank is gone. Now, of course, this is going to lead to a little financial crisis in the United States because Jackson's response to this was a whole slew of unconstitutional legal things. Um, and so that creates a panic. And this is what Martin Van Buren inherits when he becomes president in 1837. You've got a panic and it's pretty nasty. So uh, we've got an economic downturn in the 1830s. And uh, the Whigs at this point can capitalize on that, right? They say, well, you know, if we just had another bank, we just got a bank in here. If we just had if we'd done that, if we hadn't listened to stupid Andrew Jackson, we wouldn't have this financial crisis in the United States. So 1840, the Whigs sweep to power. They take the Congress. They take the executive branch. William Henry Harrison promises we're going to get another bank in the United States. And he dies a month into office. So now the the presidency goes to John Tyler, the vice president of the United States, a states' rights Whig from Virginia, one of the few people who had voted against Andrew Jackson's force bill, uh, a man that has supported basically every uh, avenue in the United States Senate and even before to oppose uh, any kind of unconstitutional federal power. John Tyler was a real Jeffersonian. So now he's in office. And there's a very famous meeting where the cabinet all resigns because Tyler kept vetoing what they wanted, and they wanted a bank. Henry Clay, of course, in the Congress, gets a bank through, and Tyler vetoes it. So then there are some changes made to it, supposedly to make Tyler happy. 
Tyler vetoes it again, right? So we've got John Tyler vetoing a third bank of the United States. Henry Clay is incensed. He resigns. All the cabinet resigns. They think that's going to undo the Tyler presidency. And of course, John Tyler will then just appoint all of his states' rights buddies into the cabinet. And he doesn't care. One of the most important appointments was Abel Upshur, who wrote a really good book on the Constitution and nullification. But he dies tragically in, a, in an accident on the USS Princeton. And so then John C. Calhoun becomes Secretary of State. So you've got all these states' rights guys in the cabinet. And John Tyler had supped with Thomas Jefferson when his father, his father was very good friends with Jefferson. John Tyler, when he was a boy, uh, ate dinner with Jefferson. I mean, he, he understood this type of what we would call originalism today. So Tyler's expelled from the Whig Party. The Whig Party agenda falls aside. And at that point, we get James K. Polk and a real push for an independent treasury. That's what it's called. And so we have a different type of treasury system in the United States established uh, in the 1840s. And that independent treasury system did not have a central banking system. It was part of the general government, but it didn't have the same kind of powers as a central bank would. Essentially, a, a federal corporation. Um, it was limited in scope, but it had uh, control over the financial sector of the U.S. economy. But it didn't uh, give the general government the ability to spend like crazy. Well, fast forward again to the 1860s. What do we get? Another big war. The Civil War, right? Or the, actually, more accurately, the War for Southern Independence, as I talk about in my class at McLean Academy. We get a, we get a major war. Well, the United States government needs money. So Abraham Lincoln, of course, President of the United States, as a good Whig, which is what he was, proposes a new banking system. And we get that, the National Banking Acts, or National Bank Acts. And that establishes another central bank of the United States, working with this, within this independent treasury system. They don't really do away with that entirely, but they have another national bank. And so we've now centralized are banking again, and lo and behold, the United States government now has the money to fight the war. They start printing money. In fact, you've got Democrats like James Byard of Delaware writing to his son, buy gold because we're going to see inflation, because the government's going to print money. They're going to print money because they can. And they do, right? I mean, in this period of time, we have a central bank, and it starts printing money like crazy. Well, that... That system carries us into the late 19th century. And then the general government starts doing all kinds of crazy things. Uh, we have, of course, this debate over the gold standard, whether we're going to have bimetallism, what is the role of inflation. And when we're talking about inflation in this period of time, we're not looking at inflation like we're seeing now. Uh, in many cases, this inflation was very minimal to what we're seeing today. But we do have some inflation, particularly after people like uh, uh, Sherman of Ohio, William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, John Sherman, proposes that the United States government uh, have equal amounts of gold and silver in the Treasury, and so that's going to create some inflation. And then, of course, the Treasury starts uh, losing its gold because they don't set the ratio properly on, on how much gold you can take out per dollar, and so people start redeeming in gold and not silver. So we start seeing more inflation. Well, Grover Cleveland, of course, is elected president, and he has to deal with this problem as a Jeffersonian, and he puts a stop to it. Right? He, he, um, he does what's necessary to tame the financial crisis, but of course, this leads to a depression. In fact, one of the worst depressions in American history, the depression of, or the panic they call these things, 
1893. We have a very serious panic. This is Cleveland's second term as president. He has one term, he loses, and then he's elected again. This is his second term as president. We have the Panic of 1893, which, I mean, again, is one of the worst panics in American history, depressions. In fact, at that point, the government is bailed out by wealthy Northerners, essentially. They go in and they single-handedly bail out the government. They bail out the financial sector. But it's thought that we have this very wild swing, all these wild swings in the economy because we don't have any regulation, we don't have, uh, we don't have proper control of this banking system. The real issue, though, is not that. The real issue in all of this is federal spending and federal policy. We wouldn't have had the, cri- the Panic of 1893 if not for federal spending and federal policy. But we do that, and so uh, Cleveland has to clean up the mess, and of course we're left with, a, with an economic downturn. So, again, moving forward. 1897, when McKinley becomes president, we have another war. We can because we have a central banking system. So we get the Spanish-American War, which is a very short war, but you're going to see more government spending. And when Teddy Roosevelt follows up as president in 1901, after McKinley's assassinated in Buffalo, New York, you start seeing more federal spending. And because of that, we're going to see another panic in the early 20th century. And again, the wealthy Northerners have to come in and bail out the financial sector. Now, Southerners are sitting back and looking at this and saying, this is all corrupt. We've got all this corruption because of this banking system, these cartels, these financial houses, essentially a cartel of wealthy people that are controlling the economic sector of the United States, the industrial elite. And they start to put pressure on trying to reform this and come up with some kind of regulations. So move into the Woodrow Wilson administration. And the Wilson administration, and this really began even before Wilson became president in 1913, but certainly there was an effort at that point to come up with some type of way to regulate this sector, to stop having all these wild swings in the financial sector, to tame inflation, to really come up with something that's going to make an impact. We get the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is created in 1913 in an effort to tame inflation. And all it's done since 1913 is create more inflation. And of course, lo and behold, we get the Federal Reserve created in 1913. And the United States has now fought more wars since that point than any period in American history. 1913, we get the creation of the Federal Reserve. We scrap the National Banking Acts. We scrap the Independent Treasury. We go to this, again, government-created corporation, a cartel in many ways, and they will control credit and currency in the United States. So within four years, the United States is involved in a great big war, financed by the shiny new Federal Reserve. We start seeing a massive expansion in in reckless banking in the 1920s when the war is over. We see a massive expansion in federal spending That began before Woodrow Wilson, but you see a lot more of it uh, beginning in the late 19th century. Even when Cleveland was president, the Republicans were spending like crazy. This was causing some of the wild fluctuations in the financial sector. Well, the 1920s, we have a depression in 1920, of course. Uh, Warren Harding suggests we don't really do anything about it, and the depression's over in about a year. But this is caused in part by the, uh, the aftermath of World War I. The 1920s then see an explosion uh, of economic activity fostered by the Fed. 
They start really allowing banks to go out and do all kinds of reckless things. And part of this is their policy of fractional reserve banking, which going back in the 19th century had Jeffersonians who were against banks being able to lend out more than what they had because they could borrow it from the central authority. This is what central banks allow other banks to do. You can, you can lend out more money than you have. Fraction reserve banking, you have to keep a fraction on hand. And when there's a, when there's a claim on deposits, they don't have the money to cover it. And so banks begin to fail. So you've, get, you've got an expansion of credit during the 1920s. People are spending money like crazy, businesses in particular, and there's what are called malinvestments. So there are bad investments. And again, this is I'm giving you a very simplistic look at what's happening. Bad investments in the 1920s, and those bad investments then come home to roost. Those chickens come home to roost during the Great Depression. 1929, Hoover, we have, we have the stock market collapse. We have banks begin to fail. We have runs on the banks. We have all kinds of real problems. So Hoover's response was federal intervention. In fact, Hubert, Herbert Hoover is the architect of what becomes the New Deal. He proposes to Franklin Roosevelt after Roosevelt's elected in 1932 to uh, essentially nationalize the banks. Roosevelt gets his request and pockets it. And then when he comes into office in 1933, rides in in the white suit, in the white limo, and or the black limo, but it seems like, you know, but rides in to save the day and uh, nationalizes the banks, shuts them down and nationalizes the banks essentially, or opens them back up with federal backing, right? So now we've got a situation where the banks are completely beholden to the federal government. That's the system now under which we're living. That's the system which is failing. Now, Southerners look at all these problems and they say, you know, we need some real banking reform. And so you get, uh, and, and even in the period before this, right, you have some discussion about trying to limit what banks can do. Uh, and that would be things like the Glass Steagall at Carter Glass and, and Henry uh, Steagall from Carter Glass from Virginia, Henry Steagall from Alabama. Southerners are looking at the banks as a real unconstitutional mess. They didn't, I mean, they were behind, some were behind the, the Federal Reserve, but you had people like Arsene Pujo in Louisiana that was completely against it, thought it was unconstitutional, a massive mistake. So you do have some of that, some of this old Jeffersonianism in the United States. But what Southerners had figured out was that they were going to get this stuff anyways. It didn't really matter what they wanted. Uh, but they thought that they could use the powers of the general government, the same powers that had been foisted on them by the North in the period after the war, to regulate the North. They thought they could regulate the financial and industrial sector through Congress to make it harder for these people to harm working-class Americans, which is what inflation is, which is what all this reckless spending is. I mean, that's all this stuff is, right? It's, it's harming working-class people in America. So we had regulations. Now, we've had a battle for years over what to do about regulations here, there. Should we have them? Should we not? And that gets us to where we are in 2023 with this financial crisis that seems to be looming, right? We've had uh, Silicon Valley Bank fail. We've had another bank in California go under. We have these banks going under, and the Federal Reserve is bailing them out. Not just, I mean, that, that's going on here, but you've also got banks in Europe that are starting to fail. There's pressure there. So you've got other uh, entities bailing out banks around the world. Essentially, what we've decided to do is the whole world has adopted a Hamiltonian-type economic system 
of backing up these banks. And uh, now it doesn't matter what Europe does because they're under a completely different economic, political, economic system. But here in the United States, we've got Hamiltonianism run completely amok. We've got the general government now so involved in banking and centralizing the economy that they're looked at as the final resort for just about everything, right? The banks go down. You got to have uh, the general government get into this. And of course, um, that is the major problem with the Hamiltonian proposal going all the way back to 1791. Now, again, there were Jeffersonians that talked about this as a problem back then. They saw what would happen if the general government and big banks had a fusion. Um, and these are people like John Taylor of Caroline, who is writing uh, you know, several books in the early 19th century on this particular problem. Uh, and, I mean, he is spot on, right? Uh, John Taylor of Caroline was the most Jeffersonian of the Jeffersonians, you could say. But Thomas Jefferson himself looked at banking and the fusion of the central authority and banks as a real issue. That was a problem that needed to be tamed. So, you know, you can read, uh, for example, John Taylor, Tyranny Unmasked, where he gets into this entire Hamiltonian system, essentially, and the real problems with it. Uh, but there's others. There's, you know, Spencer Rowan, who's writing beautiful essays against the, the Marshall decision in 1819 under the Hamden uh, pseudonym. And those essays, in fact, are at Abbeville Institute. If you just go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you look up, just type in the keyword bank, uh, it will come up with a third essay, and then you can just click on Spencer Rowan, and you can read all four essays. They're all there for you to read, these four essays against John Marshall's decision in the McCulloch v. Maryland situation. And it goes down to an understanding of the Constitution where a bank would be unconstitutional. All these implied powers would be unconstitutional. So, you, And, of course, there's also the Jackson v Bank veto bill. The Southerners had long opposed this kind of collective action by the federal government because they thought it was a dangerous precedent to set. If the general government can charter a bank, if it can have this much control of the financial sector, we're going to see some major economic disruptions in the future. And they've all been proven correct. I mean, over time, this is what we've gotten. Now, of course, on the flip side, people will say, well, yeah, we wouldn't have had all this financial growth and all this stuff. The United States was still growing economically in the 19th century before we had this kind of uh, uh, this kind of you know banking cartel like we have today, uh, the problem really comes down to expansion of credit and of course federal spending. And this is another thing that you know Jefferson and others were worried about federal spending. Another group of people that wrote about the problems of banking in this new economy were the agrarians of the 1930s. You know I take my stand in Who Owns America, two very good books about the uh, the state capitalism, essentially, of the general government in the 20th century and how that was going to be a disaster for working-class Americans. So these are all great books, all great, uh, great arguments against our current financial system, but people don't necessarily pay attention to them. We just think this is the way, this is what we're going to do, and so we ride on the wave all the time of these kind of reckless things that happen, and who knows? I mean, we keep kicking the can down the road. Who knows how long we can keep kicking the can before it really does become a major problem in the United States and we start seeing a major financial rupture, not just in the United States, but also around the world. 
And that, I mean, when you look at inflation in the U.S., the reason our inflation is uh, is manageable compared to the rest of Europe is because they're printing more money than we are. But that's it. I mean, it, this is the real issue. So um, if any of that stops, if we get any any kind of thing where the government can't come in and do these kind of things, and if people really get fed up with 6 7 8% inflation, which might become the norm at this point. I mean, we could start seeing that every year, and that's going to create some real financial pain for Americans. Uh, we're going to be in for, for some real problems. But again, all this was predicted back in the, in the uh, 18th century by the Jeffersonians. And then, of course, uh, into the 19th century, they were writing about how this was so bad for the United States in the future, this loose construction and federal spending in the name of war. And, of course, then later you've got you know guns and butter and all kinds of things, massive increases in federal spending. That's also one of the major engines that's driving, when the, driving some of these uh, very reckless policies by the United States banking industry. And, of course, uh, federal policy and other things, too, and what banks are willing to lend and how they're willing to lend it. All right. Hope you enjoyed this long, this 30-minute, uh, you know, well, I should say quick. It's very a quick review of some of these issues. A lot more in-depth on these things. We, we could go into that uh, you know, in, in other ways. But this hopefully gives you some of this ammunition you need when talking about the history of kind of central banking in the United States and how how important that was as a constitutional issue for so long. We've dropped that whole argument now, and we're just worried about the financial fallout from this. But there still is a constitutional issue to be made for all of these things. And maybe if we had real constitutional government in America, we could do that. All right. See you later on The Brian McLean Show. See you next time.